Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And you're listening to the Ready State Podcast. You got it! You better stop it! You got it! it. This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by Momentous Omega 3s. Yeah, I want to get into this. You and I came about in the 90s, 2000s, really training, and fish oil was a thing. We were taking like Costco fish oil, though. Yeah, it turns out not all fish oil is the same. Created equal. For sure. I want to talk about the way we think about fish oil as a food, and we don't eat a lot of fish in our family. I'll try to go out for the tuna sashimi whenever I can, but our kids are anti-fish. Yep. Caroline, specifically, very anti-fish. She's very anti-fish. She's dramatic when it comes to fish, but I have trained her in the morning because I'm the best dad ever, hashtag. <laughs> she will take an omega-3 pill from Momentus. And it doesn't, she was like, I'm going to burp it up. And I was like, nope, and you won't. And I test drove that on black coffee and fish oil, which I don't need to do. I did that for you. I tested it. But the idea is, man, we have to be getting some of these essential aspects of good nutrition in, and we don't eat a lot of fish in our family. And what's cool is the omega-3s that are in Momentus omega-3s are the most easily absorbed in the body which I'm sure also helps with not having fish burps after the fact. Yeah, and we're always about like, what's minimum effective dose? We're not taking massive amounts. The other thing that matters for me, third-party tested. This stuff is clean, pure, doesn't have a lot of impurities, doesn't have any impurities. I mean, this is the fish oil I take for a reason. This is good stuff. You guys should try it. Head over to thereadystate.com slash momentous and use code TRS for 20% off your first purchase. This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by Chili Sleep. Dude, we got to talk about it. We're in the middle of a heat wave when we're it recording this right so now. It is so hot. We just set an it all-time record. It was like 113 record. degrees where we live. Guess who doesn't have air conditioning? Starrettes. <laughs> we live in like a mid-century modern house that just didn't believe in air conditioning at the time. Well, I don't think they needed air conditioning. Well, guess why you don't need air conditioning? Because I sleep on a Doc Pro. I sleep on the greatest thing. My sheet was ice gold all night long. And guess what? I actually pulled a cover over me because I was so comfortable. This thing is a game changer. Yeah, it doesn't even need to be 113 degrees in a house with no air conditioning for this to be a game changer. It's really improved our sleep, our sleep quality. We wake up feeling better and more refreshed. This is a serious thing in the Starrett household. If you sleep cold, we got you covered. This thing will run warm water underneath your sheet. If you sleep hot, like most of us, not like uh, you maniacs out there, I have had my life changed by not sweating <laughs> through the bed in the night. Seriously, it's life-changing. We can't recommend this product enough. Head on over to chillysleep.com slash TRS to learn more and save off the purchase of any Cube, Uller, or Doc Pro sleep system. There's an offer available exclusively for the Ready State podcast listeners and only for a limited time. That's chili, C-H-I-L-I, sleep.com slash T-R-S to take advantage of our exclusive discount and wake up refreshed every day. Because what do you do? Just like us. What are you afraid of? Sleep? Being awesome. Kyla Chanel holds a Master of Science degree with honors in nutrition and human performance. She wrote her thesis on training stress and menstrual dysfunction. She holds a Bachelor of Science degree from the University of California at Davis in clinical nutrition. And she's also a coach Presently, Kyla is the owner and operator of her own nutrition consulting company called Nutritional Revolution, where she works one-on-one with clients and offers a variety of other services like recipe books and training programs for endurance and other athletes. Yeah, this is such an important conversation because so much of what we have come to understand 
about performance nutrition really came out of endurance nutrition. And I feel like we went through this phase of like 90s and 2000s where it was like every get gel and it was hyper precise. And then there was this revolution back towards normal oh, food, right? You must eat a hamburger while you run because it's a whole food. And all of a sudden we're realizing if you're not paying attention to some of these details when you go long, hydration, sweat loss, fueling, you can't go as fast as you want to go. The other thing I thought was so interesting we learned right at the beginning is that there aren't that many actual programs in sports nutrition. And this is really something that that uh, these experts kind of have to learn on the job by working with athletes and studying the literature. And that's what Kyla's done. We have two daughters. We talk to a lot of families. Um, there is a lot of third rails out there around being a little bit too obsessed about your nutrition, eating for body composition. But I really am refreshed because we're talking about not about like eating to lose weight, but like eating it's to run a marathon as yeah. fast as you possibly like can. Spend 12 hours, swim, bike, and running. People don't do that. We don't get to have that conversation very much. And it's interesting how you're going to turn the dial up and turn the dial down because I feel like people are really lost about what they need to eat to fuel. So in full disclosure, Kyla is a dear friend of ours and member of our failed state bike club. But the other thing is she's been really important in actually changing how we approach our own nutrition, especially when we go for longer bike rides um, in the form of we actually eat before and during. Intra carbs. As you'll learn, carbs are king. Carbs are king. This is a really great conversation. Kyla is a smarty pants. And if you walk out of this, I think you'll have some better tools to understand a little bit different framework about how and why you should eat for performance. Enjoy our conversation with Kyla Chanel. Hey, Ready State listeners. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Kyla, welcome to the Ready State podcast. Thank you guys for having me. Okay, wait, where are you coming from? Where are you podcasting from? I'm podcasting kind of over the hill from you guys in West Marin in a little town called Woodacre in my office, my home office. <laughs> and that's the setup because you are a member of the Failed State Bike Club. You're one of the founding members. We ride with you. You're one of our good friends. And I want to set this up for everyone. One of the people that has highly influenced how we fuel for sports. So I just want to yeah, set and, this up, and, everyone. You know, we'll probably repeat this like multiple times in the thing. But what I can start by saying is, when I first started riding with Kyla, I would not eat anything before the ride and not eat anything during the ride. And I'd be like, I wonder why I don't feel so great. Whatever. So anyway, I've learned a lot. We can talk <laughs> Baby, more about that. You felt that. fine. You were just slow. I was slow. I mean, and I still am I'm slow. Kidding, but um, but anyway, so Kyla, welcome. We're stoked to talk to you. I just want to go really way back to the beginning because I think it's sort of interesting. I'm not even sure Kelly knows this. Maybe he does. But back to your childhood. Whoa. Your mom. No, I don't know this. Tell me more. Your mom was like the Marin County Sheriff. Mm. Kind of. <laughs> she, okay. Well, you can say about what your mom was, but I think, you know, tell us what it was like to have a mom who did what your mom did and growing up like that. Yeah. My mom was the first ever female highway patrol officer in the Marin County office. And I'm sure that made her pretty tough. And that's probably the why she is the way she is. So yeah, grew up with a lot of fear, I think would probably be the best way to say it. Serious question, fear for you or fear for your friends? <laughs> <laughs> Probably both. Fear for my life. No, she's shared a lot of scary stuff, you know, as a child. I mean, goodness, every car accident type of crash you can imagine she was telling me about or before I could drive people who would kidnap children, like you name it, she drove the fear into my brain. <laughs> um, is that a lingering fear or 
were you able to be like, are you the most like conservative, like amazing driver? Are you kind of like, nope, I'm just going to ride with the wind. Yeah. I think I'm a very good driver. Now I did get a speeding ticket in high school. <laughs> Ooh. Yes. But now I am a very good driver. No speeding. Actually, when I, we go on road trips. My dad actually drives significantly faster than me, which is a bit, a bit concerning. So Sid might argue that point though, my husband. <laughs> Firefighter, but he's got the jaws of life just in his back pocket. So he's good to go. Exactly. Yes. Juliet teases up perfectly because you grew up in Marin. You're a kind of a local Davis grad. Mm-hmm. And you're still here. And Marin has a lot of superstar cyclists, runners, sort of outdoor athletes. How did you come to sort of understanding and occupying your role around nutrition, given that you were in the Bay Area? How did you find that and end up sort of specializing that? Because I want to get into sort of where you came from. But I think that is an interesting piece around there's a depth of nutrition power here not too long ago. And there still is. Can you explain that? Yeah. I mean, growing, well, I mean, I think in Marin, we're just very lucky too. We have amazing grocery stores and there's tons of local farms, you know, out in West Marin. So we get access to a lot of amazing quality, like fresh, whole, real foods. And then there's, yeah, it is easy. So, I mean, what kind of got me into nutrition was discovering that I had um, celiac in high school and everything kind of made sense why I had to leave every sleepover as a child because I was in immense pain <laughs> from the pizza party. Did you make that connection yourself or does someone else? Yeah, like tell you? us that story That's a little crazy. bit. I mean, tell us the celiac story. So I was having just stomach pain for a while and I didn't know. Celiac wasn't really a thing. That was back in early 2000s. And like, that was not a thing that was talked about. Um, so I had gone to a couple gastroenterologists and, and they just, you know, they're like, it's IBS, take a probiotic. And that did not solve the issue. <laughs> so eventually they ended up figuring out what was going on. And then the solution was just avoid it, which was fun to learn and figure out, which led me into a lot of like baking and making my own food from home. Are you saying in 2000, there were a ton of gluten-free options? Yeah, I mean, I just want to like set the stage here that, you know, it's like you can buy gluten-free anything now, but I mean, even 10 years ago, it was like, whoa, there's one gluten-free cookie on this weird little side aisle. But it's like when you were first diagnosed with it, it was, there was nothing. Yeah. And it was kind of weird. You'd be like a weirdo. You're like, what? You don't eat gluten? Yeah. Some people still look at me as a weirdo. (laughs) But also what's gluten? Yeah. Also, what is gluten? (laughs) Yeah. What is it? I joke with people and tell them I'm not a fun person to go out to dinner with. But, you know, I feel like there are a lot of options nowadays and it has become a lot easier. And so many other people have other allergies. So, yeah, jokes on you and Sid, your husband. You guys are both jacked and fast. (laughs) (laughs) See what gluten did or didn't do. (laughs) Do you feel like, just as an aside, because we'll get back to the, the main thing here, but do you feel like being a celiac has been hijacked by people who are like, I'm gluten intolerant. And like, do you feel like you're like, no, you just shouldn't eat a smash a whole pizza and drink a pitcher of beer by yourself. I actually, my gut dies when I eat gluten. Do you feel like those things have been sort of conflated? Yeah, I think there are a lot of people avoiding gluten definitely that don't need to, for sure. I think it became, um, you know, just like a popular thing to do, kind of like going vegan at one point was very popular to do, or cutting dairy was very popular to do. It became a trend. 
I think if you can tolerate gluten, by all means, it could be a great part of your diet. So why not enjoy it? Just you sounding so reasonable. So reasonable. From can the other side of the fence. Can I tell you one quick celiac story about Kelly? Kelly actually diagnosed way back in the early days before anyone knew what celiac was, our friend Molly as being, or, you know, he suggested to her that she might be a celiac. And she was in her like mid to late 20s, I think, at that point. And she had become a fine artist. And after... She was um, having like Hashimoto's and yeah, crazy it was, it was stuff. Serious, and I was like, huh, you know, this is like an autoimmune thing. I wonder what's up. Yeah. So Kelly said, go have them check and see if you're celiac. And she was. And the the funny story that she always said is that like... If I had learned as a child that I was a celiac and didn't go to school feeling horrible all the time and foggy. with a stomach ache and foggy, she's like, I definitely would have been like an investment banker and not an artist. Isn't that crazy? That's good. Yeah. Yeah. And so she, um, she's like, she I just, just thought you ate breakfast and then you feel like shit. Yeah. Yeah. She's just like, cause you know, is this, you, she's older than you too. So it was like, everybody just ate a giant trough of like lucky charms for breakfast. And so she would, you know, eat that mm. and then feel horrible and foggy at school. And, charms. you know, so anyway, that's my celiac story and Kelly. Okay. So I feel like there's so many times where people discover something about themselves and you sort of become interested and you become an ear into cooking What's the next step? Because you work with a lot of very high level athletes and you have a specialty and you like you're in your coaching group. How did you get to there? How did you get to college where you're like, I'm going to stay nutrition and then kind of back into where you are now? Yeah. I mean, nutrition became of interest for sure with the celiac thing. And then I played basketball in high school and had anemia. And that was a big game changer. And also learned a bit about electrolytes. I look back and realize it now. My dad was having me drink pickle juice <laughs> when I would play basketball. Maybe electrolytes weren't as popular then. I don't even know. But it made a big difference, you know, when you're actually hydrated. So and then he got me into mountain biking in, when I was in high school. And I think a lot of my nutrition desires and, and schooling there was really just biased, like self interest 100%. Like I wanted to learn more about how to help me and help me be healthy. And what are things I can do to live a longer, um, healthier life and well fueled and support the sports I want to do. And I got into Davis and did at the time it was a clinical dietetics program was offered. So sports nutrition was not much of a thing, honestly, at the time. Like, it's even hard to find a sports nutrition undergrad or master's program now. At the time, the kind of workaround was to do a double major in clinical and then kinesiology. And then it was up to you to kind of put those pieces together. But in your nutrition courses, you never learned about sport. It was all how do you set up these specific ratios for a tube feeding patient in a hospital? Or, you know, it was very different. Not about performance. Yeah, not, about, not like how disease. do you feel for a five-hour triathlon or something and, you know, how and when and what do you eat? Yeah. So in the clinical dietetics program, the requirement um, is to do three different internships. It's a community nutrition, food service management, and a clinical nutrition internship. And so I did all three of those. And then there was a internship offered by Dr. Liz Applegate, who ran the whole D1 sports nutrition at Davis for a sports nutrition internship on campus with the athletes. And it was not required and it wasn't as well known. And I applied to it and did it. And I absolutely fell in love. 
when I did my clinical nutrition at um, the hospital, I just, it's one of those things where it's like, I'm so happy I did it because I know, I knew right then and there, I like never wanted to go down that path. Uh, harsh as that sounds, but like, it's one of those things that was a big eye opener for me where I knew I didn't want to go that direction. And then when you get to do the sports nutrition stuff, I just like everything kind of clicked. Yeah. And fell in love. And then after Davis, I got to, to work um, with Dr. Stacey Sims when she was still at Osmo and she really took me under her wing. I actually was going back and forth from Davis while I'd come home on the weekends and coach CrossFit. And Stacy was one of my CrossFit clients. So she just pulled me under her wing and taught me all the, opened my eyes to the whole sex differences and sport stuff, which was really neat. And yeah, trained me to take over her position at Purple Patch, um, working with athletes and then started my own private practice, went to grad school, did all that fun stuff. So, and here I am today. Okay. So private practice is not what I would have thought of when you describe your business, but I mean, I guess that's what it is, but, but tell us what it is. It's called nutritional revolution. I think of you more as like an entrepreneur nutritionist um, than a private practitioner. But um, but yeah, tell us. No, what... no, I'm a private practitioner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In the same way that uh, you are. But yeah, yeah, that's super yeah. weird. I would never describe myself that way either. Yeah, no. So tell us about the company and, you know, what you do and who do you serve and what's going on? Yeah. So company, like you said, it's Nutritional Revolution and started by me in the beginning days working with athletes. And it kind of evolved from the Purple Patch situation. So when I was working at Purple Patch, I was working solely with, they primarily focus on Ironman athletes. So a lot of like long distance endurance, nutrition and hydration programming. And then I started my own nutritional revolution to help people who are non-purple patch athletes. And um, that's just kind of grown and grown and continue to work with primarily endurance athletes, runners, gravel cyclists, Ironman, you name it, runners, all kinds of stuff. Even ultra runners. I get we get some fun, like unique sports, like tactical athletes every once in a while. But yeah, primarily work on whether it's day-to-day nutrition, if it's specific like sweat testing and gut training, we might do race build. So breaking down their requirements for certain durations in heat and humidity and what those requirements are. So lots of math. (laughs) I'm going to play dumb here for a second, but is it that specific? Is can hydration and nutrition... Because I think about the average person, like I go to the gym, I work out, do I need, I mean, besides really trying to dial in body composition and quality for sure, I mean, does that aspect of nutrition really matter at the highest levels for folks? Because I feel like, you know, I'm just good enough. I did my CrossFit workout, you know, I eat some food. Do I need, I don't need really need to do differently in my CrossFit programming, do I? And does nutrition make a big difference towards these longer durations? I would say 100% nutrition and hydration makes a difference. You will not finish if you do not program your nutrition and hydration accordingly. I mean, some of these people are out on course for 12 hours. Like, And when we learn about their sweat losses, some of these people are losing like 86 ounces an hour. So if you think about that times 12, like if you're not getting some fluids in you. A vampire who hasn't eaten another human being in a long time. Yeah. <laughs> 
So Kyla, what does it look like for one of these? Like, I mean, you know, like maybe just give us some snapshot of like some athlete who's going to do like a five hour triathlon or I don't know, you choose the the time, but what does that actually look like? Like, what are you advising their eating and drinking? I realize it's individualized because again, you're measuring things like sweat loss and, you know, everybody has different body composition, but like just a generally speaking, like and the reason I bring this up is I think because, I think people need to Julia be eating and I are the and, same size and we need to eat and drink Yeah, the same I mean amount. I think I think generally speaking those kinds of athletes in order to perform at the level they are are eating way eating and drinking way more than people realize. Um so I just I don't know could you give like a a you know day in the life of the race of a you know endurance athlete eating and drinking? Yeah, so I was just building a race plan but right before I hopped on the podcast with you guys. So um, one of my clients, he is an older male. He's doing Maple Valley 70.3. So that's a half Ironman distance. And he is going to be... Oh, just a half Ironman. I see. Yeah, just a half Ironman. And he's in his 60s, by the way. Yeah. Like, I'm constantly impressed by my clients. Like, they're so inspiring. We, like, calculate out what his time will be in each event. So it starts with a swim, you go to the bike, and then you finish with the run. And he guesstimated he would be swimming for an hour, on the bike for three and a half hours, and running for two and a half hours. And then we have to account for transition times and things like that. So he's not going to be eating or drinking while he's swimming. So we have to account for getting those fluids and that nutrition in him on the bike and in the run. Many times with endurance athletes like this, the run is a harder place for people to definitely have a desire to drink, but just more prone to GI issues just with the stomach jostling and stuff. And let me just go saying, I ran one race ever that was like I did the quad dipsy. Oh, nice. Let me just tell you how fun it is to eat anything or drink anything when you're jogging. No. Yeah, no, no. Much less racing. Like I don't race. I was like, I was surviving and I was like, mm, I don't think I'm going to eat on this one. Yeah. Nope. I'm done drinking today. Yes. That's the reason why I want to become a gravel biker with Juliet so we can just stop at all the coffee shops and <laughs> eat all the pastries, get all the coffee. But um, Cappuccino and pastries. Yeah. <laughs> the gluten-free pastries. Yeah. So with something like that, we've had this client sweat test. What does that mean? The simplest explanation or way to sweat test is hopping on a scale immediately before you start your training session, going for your training session, and then hopping on the scale immediately after your training session to assess for weight loss. And that's even like I'm drinking, I'm doing my normal thing. Yeah. So if you are drinking, say it's a session, maybe he went for a two hour bike ride that we're sweat testing for, you do want to account for, and we basically add back in, we have a whole um, like calculator equation system where we will account for fluids coming in. So he was hydrating during, and then if we want to get nitty gritty about it, we can even weigh foods that he consumed and come back and weigh the empty wrappers if you get super detailed with it to assess fluid losses in certain environments. So we can then go back and say, okay, when client X was sweat testing in 55 degrees, he was losing 18 ounces an hour. And then when he switched up and started sweat testing in 85 degrees, his sweat rate went all the way up to 45 ounces an hour. And so then we have a reference range to look back on. 45 ounces. Are those actual numbers that you've seen before? Because I don't think, I think if someone is like, wow, soda pop is 12 ounces and I lost four cans of soda pop in an hour. Is that, is that a reasonable amount of sweat loss? That's not a made up number. Oh, that's actually low. That's like a moderate. So I just had to do a bunch of um, stuff to pull together for a hydration podcast I did. And one of the things we we're looking at in the literature is like the common 
rate of loss is one to two lead. They put in the metric system. So one to two liters per hour. So that's 33 to um, 67 ounces per hour is the like normal, more common place to be up to four liters per hour. They see in some athletes. So if I was like a, if my happened to my name happened to rhyme with Nellie Arnett, you're saying that I might need to drink a lot more on. on I think maybe that you and I don't need to bring the same amount of water bottles on our bike rides. I think we do. What food is a really tricky subject out there right now? I have seen you really. You're one of our good friends. I have coached you for it feels like a long time. I see you talking about eating whole foods whenever you can. Because I think when people think endurance, like I'm not sure I've ever eat, seen you eat a gel or a goo when we're riding. I don't know if that's true or not. I think it is. I haven't seen one. Yeah. But you really are, have been a proponent towards whole foods. Can people do these races or do they need to be like, oh, I'm an, I'm going to go run a 10K. I immediately adapt to the drinking this, this sugar paste. Do I have to do that in order to do these things? Yeah, that's tricky. I mean... I would say like the more recreational athlete likely know. I think when you start getting to a higher level of performance, like the competitiveness is very serious. It might be more in your favor to rely a little bit on the simpler stuff. But for our failed state bike club rides, like we're stopping and chatting. And so relying on like a quick sugar digesting thing, just I don't feel is necessary for something like that. If I were out going doing maybe interval work, you know, something like that. I might bring along something like that, like a quick digesting gel. But I think you can get away with using more real food stuff where you can start to get in trouble is there's some things that will just slow gastric emptying. And so if an athlete wait, is- wait, what, what does that mean? What's gastric emptying? So how fast something empties out of your stomach into the small intestine. Why does that matter? So- if anybody's listening, this is, has noticed burping, vomiting, stomach sloshing, um, diarrhea, any of that stuff. Wait, wait, you're saying that's bad. Yeah, that's not fun. It's not fun. But no people, wants to have the diarrhea. reason I mentioned is that no happens, wants to have diarrhea that when they're running a marathon. The time. It does. Yeah. People feel terrible when they fuel and they and they go long or up their intensity. I mean, this is a real thing. Yeah. You even hinted at gut training. Can you talk about what that means to say? Because I want you to come back to this. You said gut training earlier, and I was like, ooh, gut yeah. training. <laughs> yeah. Because I do gut training with cookies every night. There you go. Exactly. So gut training is a little bit newer, I would say, kind of area that's being a bit more publicized. But just as an example, there are Tour de France athletes consuming 120 grams of carbohydrates per hour while they're racing. So for a really long time, there was this kind of take away from the research that you could not consume more than 60 grams of carbohydrates per hour. That's just a really clean number, not 61, 60. All humans are the same. Exactly. Yeah. They determined one gram of, of uh, carbohydrate per minute is what the research showed. And what they realized then is that they were only looking at one type of sugar, which is glucose. And it did seem that in fact, glucose kind of tapped out at 60 grams per hour. So then research started to look at combining two types of sugars and the common mix is a little bit of fructose and a little bit of, and the 60 grams of glucose. So they'll do a two to one is most common, 30 grams of fructose, 60 grams of glucose to tap out at 90 grams of carbohydrates per hour because fructose utilizes a different intestinal transporter to get into our system. So 
basically they were saying that the glucose molecules kind of backed up, tapped out, filled up all the uh, sodium glucose transporters, and then you would need a different sugar to come in to then continue to get more energy to exceed 60 grams of carbs per hour. What we're seeing now is that you can, in fact, gut train. So you can train the gut to tolerate and absorb more than 60 grams, more than 90 grams of carbohydrates per hour. Girl, I could have told you this. Like, you should just <laughs> see me put down a whole bunch of George's cookies. I could, like, I can way exceed 100 grams an hour. Except for you're putting down George's cookies and then sitting on the couch. That's because that's the only thing I can do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this oh, is a different oh, kind of gut training, Kelly. This no, is okay, a different okay, kind okay, of gut okay, training. This is uh, strictly in reference to consumption in a state of exertion. So, yeah, you can easily consume, I'm sure, take down more than 120 grams when you're chilling on the couch, right? But yeah, in a state of exertion, there's decreased blood flow to the gut. So it can just increase the likelihood of GI distress or irritation. And so when we gut train, and gut train consists of kind of like slowly increasing your carbohydrate intake per hour in your training sessions. Ideally, these are training sessions that represent some or include some like race pace intervals or something like that. So it simulates the race as best as we can. And you're consuming these carbohydrates and you're just increasing incrementally up a little bit each week. And in doing that, we see that you can do um, three things. You can increase how quickly the stomach empties into the small intestine. So you're not leaving the food sitting around in the stomach, which can lead to like burping is one thing, vomiting for sure, nausea, if it's hanging out there too long. And then Emptying out of the stomach is cool, but we want to make sure we actually absorb it out of the small intestine. So the next thing that can happen when we gut train is we can actually increase the amount of carbohydrate receptors that are lining the small intestine to then pull those carbohydrates out rapidly and then actually be put into the bloodstream and used as energy. So those two things are really important. And then the third thing is we can decrease just the perception of gut discomfort over multiple gut training sessions. So that's usually what we're aiming for when we're gut training. Oh, by and the way, this doesn't sound fun at all. I don't really want to go more. back. I want to go back to our like 60 year old triathlete guy. So, you know, you've sweat tested him. So you're going to make sure that he drinks per hour, the right amount of fluids, um, to replace or exceed that. And then like, what's he actually like, what's the guy going to eat? Like, what's he going to be eating during this thing? Yeah. So this client in particular, I'll just give this as reference, but I will say many clients are very different. I always check with them and what products they want to use. And then based off of the sweat test data, we may tweak things um, when we actually find out sweat sodium concentration. So many times there are gels out there or products out there where they're meant to be a fuel source, more so a fuel source because they're very carbohydrate dominant. But when you actually look at the sodium content, it is very low. And Everyone is so unique in their sweat losses and fluid losses and sodium concentration within their sweat. So I highly suggest doing that. But for this individual, he's actually using, do you want me to say product names? Sure. That's fine. Okay. Um, he's using Tailwind, which is a liquid carbohydrate and electrolyte formula in addition to uh, goo gels. And so this is something he's used for a long time. His gut's very used to it. He actually has never had any GI issues. He's one of my very lucky clients in that manner. And he's consuming 114 grams of carbohydrates per hour in that combo. So he's doing one and a half servings of his tailwind per hour plus three goos an hour. So about every 20 minutes, he's taking down a gel 
and along with that, he's sipping his Tailwind product. So Be- can I just because just, he's going out for six or seven hours? So you know, obviously, like a recreational athlete wouldn't need to be eating that much per hour. But like, what would that look like? Because we're talking about goose and you're talking about something that you're putting inside his water bottle, the tailwind stuff. But like, if you were to turn that into like food that people could relate to, like, is that like three go macro bars that he's eating per hour? Like relate it to some kind of food that people understand what it is. Like what's, you know, like how much, just to explain how much he's actually eating. Yeah. So just for some fast math. So 114 grams of carbs per hour is equivalent to roughly almost six bananas an hour. (laughs) Just like for reference there. Okay. All right. See, that's helpful. Yeah. That's really helpful to know. Yeah. Two banana club is my jam. Can I eat two bananas in a single setting? Like I feel like when I'm feeling dangerous, (laughs) but uh, six bananas an hour. Do you think you could do it? Do you think you could actually do it? Let me ask you this. One of the things that we've seen is that Look, Stacy is like a great friend of ours, Dr. Sims. We, I have aimed her at some serious people before. I know that you all are experts in this. One of the things that I have perceived is that parents especially think, well, hey, I performance, hydration, nutrition, especially as we go for performance endurance sports, not I'm going for a hike and I'm just going to keep my heart rate at 135 for the next six hours. That's a different fueling need. They have taken those precepts and aimed them back at their kids for a, you know, 20-minute event or a single soccer game. And there's real confusion there. Could you shed some light on it? Like if Juliet and I are going for an hour bike ride, what do I need to eat? Do I need to eat? What how should I yeah, think or like, about Or like that? a cro- like a CrossFit, like a whatever, CrossFit or just some kind of like you go to like a one hour fitness class or a one hour bike ride. Or do like, I need, do I need to worry about my kids playing a water polo game? Like like, what's your sweat loss and choke this down? I mean, isn't, I mean, are those things different? Yes and no. I mean, I do work with some high school athletes, specifically swimmers and water polo players. And there are some of them that are putting in more hours a day than my Ironman athletes. So in those situations, they need to eat like it's their job. Let me stop it there. Do you think that that's like different than performance nutrition? Like they're smashing gels and, and drinking drinking calories versus chronically under eating, which is one of the things that we see massively. We, we were just talking to a whole bunch of families of boys who are athletes, swimmers, water polo players. And they're like, boys are talking about gaining weight. And we're like, you're barely eating what you need to maintain your current body weight. You're losing weight during the season, like gain weight. Like you think it's a joke. Like you can't, you're not even eating enough food to cover your basic nutrition needs. Yeah. I think that is really common. I see that with high school athletes as well as adults in sports. Um, I think that there is some underfueling that can be going on for sure, out, just outside of training, definitely in training as well. But yeah, I've seen that. And I particularly, so not enough carbohydrates. There's such a carbohydrate fear. Yeah, carbs make you fat, bro. Everyone knows that. Just kidding, everyone. Lisa just checked her watch. She's noting the time when I just, that's when the internet killed Kelly. (laughs) I mean, I think when, probably when I'm saying carbs, people are picturing like Starbucks muffins and popsicles and cake and stuff like that. But carbohydrates are also beans and rice and sweet potato. You know, there's more micronutrient dense ways to get in carbohydrates as well. And you don't need to be afraid of those things. And actually they're hugely beneficial to performance and definitely endurance performance as well. 
Hey guys, we just want to take a little break in this podcast episode to actually tell you about one of our own products and that's our Ready State Virtual Mobility Coach. Yeah, the app literally is the first place you should go if you're trying to feel better, if you're trying to solve an old movement-related problem, if you're just trying to not be as sore from your workout. There is so much going on in this app. We have a mobility test that is comprehensive and designed by Kelly Starrett himself. It's pretty good. So you can figure out what your biggest limitations are and start to work on that. There are sports-specific mobilizations if you want to try to lift more or run faster. There is a pain area. And we even have a ton of bonus content. You can do challenges around squat and ankle and a bunch of other specific body parts so you can just generally get more supple and awesome. You should talk about this app more often. (laughs) We started the original mobility project back in 2010 trying to help people solve problems for themselves. We think that every human being should be able to perform basic maintenance on themselves. And we want you to be able to engage in some self-care in a really reasonable, responsible way. One of our favorite parts of it, daily mobility. You have a 10, 20, or 30-minute follow-along with me. If you just have a ball and a roller, think you want to feel better, move better, play along. I mean, we really feel like that's the base camp practice, then you can add in what you need. We're really proud of this and what we've created here, and we think you should give it a try. Head on over to thereadystate.com slash trial and use code POD20 for 20% off your first month. And just FYI, including your two-week free trial, that's literally six weeks for $11.99. You can't beat that. There's so much amazing content to help you feel better and move better for $11.99. In the words of our uh, podcast producer, bananas. So, Kyla, I know that your primary clientele are these serious people who need these like very specific nutrition plans. But I also know, since you're my friend, that you work with some normal people, um, including, you know, like some kids, like you said, and not just athletes, but also some kids who are struggling with eating disorders. And there's two things that I've learned from you. One of them is low energy availability, which I think is a huge problem, especially in female youth athletes. And then I'd never heard of it before. In fact, I was just telling Kelly about it the other day, um, a term called orthorexia, which I have to think is gigantically huge, especially in a place like Marin, where people are so active and it's always easy to sort of hide behind your health habits, even if yeah, they're unhealthy. So down. yeah, could you break those down? Like, what are those and what are you seeing? Yeah. So the first one you said was LIA, right? Low energy availability. That term actually has evolved a little bit into red. Well, there's a couple terminologies. The first, it was female athlete triad, which was, we know that that is one thing, but also low energy availability isn't solely prominent in females. Men can have low energy availability as well. And so the term has changed a little bit to red S or relative energy deficiency in sport. And it is kind of what it sounds like. I mean, they're not eating enough food. And sometimes that can be totally unintentional because of lack of appetite. So for example, runners like tend to get a lack of appetite post-training. And sometimes it's really hard to actually get them to eat some recovery nutrition right away. And it takes a, a while. And that has to do with just elevations in fight or flight hormones and lack of blood flow to the gut and stuff like that. And then orthorexia, that's a little bit this is why I don't run, everybody, because if running made me not hungry, I'm, Yeah, you're like, I'm no, out. thank you. <laughs> this is crap. Exactly. Um, and then orthorexia is a bit more of, it can be 
kind of like an obsession with like clean eating too. So like only eating organic or um, only eating vegetables or not like they have to be able to read the label. There can be a bit of like an obsession there. And that is something, interestingly enough, I have seen that in a handful of Ironman athletes. I think I find that a lot of them are very type A and they want to do things right. And they think eating loads and loads and loads of veggies is the right way to go, which yes, we need those. But what ends up happening is they get so full off of veggies that they're not actually getting anywhere near their carbohydrate target to fuel the hours and hours and hours that they're putting in of training per day. And it can set them up in these states of relative energy deficiency um, or low energy availability. And when we don't have enough energy circulating around our body to help us do the things we want to do, the body is going to start kind of cutting costs, if you will, in areas that it can. And that might be not allocating as much energy to building your bones up. It might be um, not allocating as much energy into your sex hormones. So we see women that are losing menstrual cycles or we'll see men with low testosterone. The body's really smart and it will it wants you to survive. So it's going to cut costs from somewhere. And it's a little bit different for everybody, but definitely common areas are you know, bone mineral density, we see a lot of increased injuries, fractures, stuff like that, and then loss of menstrual cycle in our female clients, unfortunately. If I'm trying to, if I'm trying to fuel for performance, because I feel like every diet out there or every eating regimen is all geared towards calorie restriction or being in an energy deficit or caloric deficit, right? Like, whether it's keto or intermittent fasting, people are trying to change their body composition. How much body composition work do you do? Or do you find those things are really at odds that, hey, we're going to be fueling for performance and also, Kelly, you're too fat on the bike and we need to change something like that. Do you do that kind of thing too? Because I feel like that has just muddied the water. Everyone's like, I'm too fat for Instagram. And then I'm like, by the way, you're eating <laughs> eating like a way that you're going to go slow the rest of your life. Are you finding that to be an issue? Yeah, definitely. I think one of the things we have to educate our clients on quite often is when there is a a weight loss goal or a body recompositioning goal, that timing that accordingly with where their races fall is really important because especially if the goal is weight loss, many times the things we need to do with nutrition are going to be almost opposite of what we want to do if the goal is performance. And so I think many times people They want all the things, right? They want good performance. They want to lose weight. They want body recompositioning. But to we can't support performance when we put you in a caloric deficit to achieve weight loss. And so it's timing those things accordingly and being comfortable with switching throughout the season. So we may, you know, in the early phases or off season, those great times to like work on body recompositioning when your goal is not performance for sure. And then when the goal is performance, we need to up your intake and your carbs and um, shift some things around to support support that. So when you Amazing. get, you see obviously a lot of new clients, but, and maybe one of them is that they should, maybe I'm going to answer it myself, that is that they shouldn't fear carbs. But, you know, in this world where there is still a massive amount of nutrition information and confusion and nobody knows whether they should fast or not fast or do keto or be a vegan Cetos or are dangerous. whatever, is, is there one kind of like big, like what's the big misconception? Like what are people coming knocking on your door that you're having to constantly do? And remember everyone, listeners, Kyla is coming from a performance nutrition 
perspective. You can talk to all of these different things, but that's the lens we want you to yeah. be working. Yeah, for, but right? like, what's the biggest misconception that you have to sort of combat with your clientele? I think, I mean, probably the most common thing we see and have to combat is is the fear of carbohydrates, and we see time and time again in the literature that. Carbs are king. <laughs> I'll say that. But like carbs do always outperform or support performance better than um, they've done studies, you know, looking at like ketones or, you know, mixtures of even including protein or amino acids and carbohydrates always win. And so that is something where many times when we start doing the calculations based off of the literature of what some of these athletes need, it's a big kind of shock and eye opener to them of how much I would like to see them hitting or how much they might need prior to a training session or even during a session. But I, I want to go fast and you're telling me I actually have to eat this much. I can't do it. Sorry. Yes. But once they do it, it's so neat because immediately you hear from them and they're like, I felt so much better. I could go so much further in my run or you hear that stuff and it's or their recovery is better and they're not as fatigued or craving chips and popcorn and pretzels later in the day because they hit and replenish their glycogen following their training sessions and didn't fully deplete themselves. So yeah, carbohydrates. <laughs> I still think I could do better, Kyla, because I'm only, I've only gone so far as eating before we ride usually some protein and oats. And then sometimes I'll have like half a bar. Mm, okay. But you're not, you're not throwing it down. I think you're, I think you're, you think that's uh, in fine? my non-expert you think that's fine? advice, How am I doing? you're doing so much better. Yeah, that's true. I'm improving. You are. What was Carolyn was eating? Like, was <laughs> she eating some like, she had a pocket of sausage, sausage yeah. or something. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, you know, uh, I'm not sure that that's yeah. uh, what you when your fire is really yeah, well, hot. Yeah, well, we have yeah. Just to, for there. context, we have a we have a German woman who um, joins our bike clubs and literally has shown up with like a pocket of like bratwurst. Yeah, that's what it was. <laughs> okay, <laughs> one of the things I think is really confusing for people is water and like hydration is like hydrate or die. I think the pendulum has swung back a little bit. You are really advocating for this idea of like, hey, you know, you're losing all this this water when you're in sweat, when you're exercising, and you're not really paying attention to that. And you can get away with that for an hour or so, but you can't get away with it for a lot longer. Do one of the things I'll, I'll add on to that is that we have heard, hey, whenever you can, don't drink your calories. Do you still ascribe to that generally? I think there's really an exception to like everything. It's so it's hard to say and generalize. Okay. So I'm a, I'm a working dad who doesn't want to get fat. Should I drink my calories? I would say probably not. Great. Okay. <laughs> my heart rate is 180 for the next three hours, yeah. which is impossible, but let's just pretend it was probably not going to be able to chew a sandwich while I'm racing fast. Right. Is that a good example of why I might need to supplement with, with calories? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other place I see that it can be really helpful is honestly with my athletes who do lose their appetite post-training, I tell them I'd rather see them get in something than nothing in that post-training window. And so if they prefer to rely on a liquid recovery source, um, whether that's a smoothie with some Greek yogurt in it, or if it's a simpler protein powder with some powdered carbohydrates, like I will take that. Like if they can get that in and start that recovery process and glycogen replenishment when glycogen synthase is elevated, I want them doing that rather than nothing at all. One of the things that we talked about briefly 
in your sleuthing of trying to understand the neighborhood? Because this is something I do as a clinician. Like people come in and I'm like, okay, you're telling me this one little hyper local idea, but I sort of need to understand what a bigger picture is. Do you feel like people really are super nerdy and like love to track this stuff and then the rest of the meals and the rest of the day is less important in their brains? How much do you have to be like, hey, you're talking about going faster in this 10K or this half Ironman or whatever and you don't eat breakfast. Does that happen a lot to you? It does. I think what we see is people will oftentimes eat the same thing for breakfast or throughout the whole day on a day they do nothing. And they'll eat the exact same thing on a day they go for a six-hour bike ride. <laughs> and that needs to change. They need to, you know, increase intake a bit more leading up to that six-hour bike ride. They need to consume, obviously, nutrition during that bike ride. And they need to hit the energy intake pretty hard after that six-hour bike ride. So, yeah, they need to get shift the nutrition a bit and kind of find a routine that can work to support different levels of output is what we're trying to kind of educate our clients on. So I have this really, really close friend who's trying to do this 24-hour ride. And this is the first time in his life he's ever gone long. And it's like he's a baby learning to step stand for the first time in terms of like eating. And he's like, look, I ate some oats before my bike ride and then ate 200 calories an hour. And I'm like, you're a 230-pound man and you just rode for six hours. Um, you may be under fueling a little bit. How would someone begin to understand how many calories? So it's not a race, but it is going to be long. Let's say that Juliet and I are doing some long through hike or something. How would I begin to know what a rough guideline is for what I should eat every hour based on continuous output, right? I'm not just saying, hey, I just we're doing a hike and we're, you know, we're not elite, we're middle-aged people and we can just eat meals. But when someone's going to do that for the first time, are there basic guidelines or fence posts for him? For them? For you? <laughs> it's not me. It's not me. Not you? Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's, if we're talking about hiking, if you're carrying a pack, if you're at altitude, those are things where your hydration and your carbohydrate intake is going to be slightly greater than maybe if you were here at sea level walking around the block for sure. Um, and for continuous effort, you do want to minimize the glycogen depletion as best as you can that otherwise you're going to you're going to bonk you're going to hit the wall eventually and so if we can delay that by keeping some nutrition coming in i think it depends on your effort so how hard are you breathing is it a conversational pace if you're not able to have a conversation you're pushing really hard consistently and you're breathing really hard you're likely going to want to lean more towards carbohydrates as your primary fuel source and then if you are walking and you can have a conversation, you might tolerate definitely a, a lower caloric level, but probably a combination of, you know, some carbohydrates, fats, and protein. And that could be something like a go macro bar. How many calories an hour? Is there a rough guideline? Because I feel like it's really people just don't like they're going to, we just see people eating way too much on the trail. We're like, hold up. Like, and then people who are just, yeah, they're under eating. Yeah. I mean, that's hard. I, from a hiking perspective, I can't, Think of any. Let's say biking. Let's say I want to ride my bike for this long period of time. Julie and I are going for a big bike ride. Again, if pace is, you know, easy, a minimum would be 30 grams of carbs per hour, which is equivalent. You've ridden with me. Even your easy pace is not my easy pace. It's a hard pace for me. 
But then if you start pushing and you're going to be out there longer, then the recommendations kind of shift and say, like, aim for 60-ish grams of carbs per hour. And then if you're going to be out there three plus hours, then we're looking at, and it's a hard push. So think of 90 grams of carbs per hour. So that's kind of where you can try and be. But And those suggestions too are based on, did you glycogen load leading up to that? Because even when you glycogen load and you saturate the muscle with carbohydrates, you can still completely knock those out in 90 minutes, all out effort. It's something to keep in mind. You can deplete those stores pretty rapidly. So basically what you're saying is if I eat like a giant bowl of oats and then I blow myself out in 90 minutes, I'm completely depleted, like totally depleted. You could, you could be. You can't work that hard. Yeah. I'm too old to work that hard, (laughs) but I mean, theoretically, Kyla, theoretically. It would be 91 minutes for you, Jay, because you're, you're the shoes. Um, okay, so Kyla, I want to just shift since we're running out of time here. Um, one of the things that you and I talk a ton about actually on our bike rides is what it's like to be an entrepreneur and small business mm. owner. And I mean, I know you think of yourself as in private practice, but what I see you as is running a small business because you have employees and people working for you and websites and all the challenges that go with running a small business. But, you know, this is sort of a twofold question. Like what surprised you the most about um, running your own business and what have been the biggest challenges? My goodness. Well, you've been my like business mentor for sure. I bring all my questions to you. So say we all. Yeah. But oh goodness. I mean, tax season is always a fun surprise, you know, when they, uh, (laughs) you know, like to knock you there, which is always fun. But oh, goodness. I mean, all of it was such a learning curve. I mean, just everything from like having to register your business name and going to the Marin County Civic Center to like, you know, register that and posting it in the newspaper. It's all just like all that stuff was self-learned, I guess. And yeah, and then bringing on employees was a whole nother thing of like trying to figure out how that all works with, you know, registering as an S corp and doing all of that stuff was all, I mean, it's all, it's consistently a learning curve. It will forever be, (laughs) I think. Is it better working for yourself or is it easier to work for someone else? I personally love working for myself. I think it's great. And especially with Sid's schedule, my husband's schedule as a firefighter, we can coordinate stuff definitely easier. I'm in control of my schedule, which is nice my calendar, when people can book. So that's always really nice. Definitely. I do like that. Where do you feel like trends are going in this space? You know, one of our friends we interviewed a long time ago said that when you got a nutrition coach, it felt like you were turning pro. And we're seeing more and more people working with outside nutrition coaches and it being a real turning point in their performance. When would I need to do that as a person? Could you give me some examples when I might seek out someone like you as a performance nutrition coach? Yeah, that's an excellent question. My answer to that, honestly, is when you're ready to make a change because it's going to be a change. And we see plenty of clients come to us that I think they want us to make the change for them. You know, they want the information, but they're not ready to apply it whatsoever. And yeah, you need to be ready and willing to make the change. Like, I'm here to give them all the information under the sun, but they 
are the ones essentially that do have to make that change and make that initiative. I'm not the one who's there doing their grocery shopping or cutting up their veggies, you know, or putting together their recovery shake. They need to be the ones that are responsible for that. And if they're not ready to take that on or find ways to implement that into their life, they don't have time for it, then it's likely going, they're just not ready for it yet. You know, I do think it's a positive trend in the space, though, that there is so many more accessible nutrition coaches out there um, because it's such a challenge for so many people. And, you know, people haven't for years batted an eyelash about being like, well, I need personal training, so I'm going to hire a personal trainer or, you know, or I'm going to run a marathon, so I'm going to hire a marathon coach. And it does seem to be a more recent thing where people are like, oh, nutrition is actually complicated. And, you know, whether I'm trying to change my body composition or try to perform in a sport, like it's super complicated. Actually, I should hire an expert for this. Like it seems like like we've really sort of made a shift culturally that people are more open to it. We would do these body composition challenges because you just found some photos yeah. from back in the day and people kept food logs. We just were like, hey, you should just, do you even know what you're eating? And when people would reflect back sometimes and share, they're like, well, I had a really bad day. So I ate a bag of peppermint patties and we're like, and what else? And they're like, no, that's it. Because I felt so bad about eating peppermint patties, I stopped eating. So we're like, you ate a bag of peppermint patties today. That was what you ate. And we're like, okay, so what the hell do you think is happening to you? I mean, (laughs) you know, it's kind of crazy when we forget some of the real, you're talking about nutrient timing and food quality and what to feel with. But man, people are just swimming out there, I feel like. Yeah, we have seen that. The binge and repeat and then the kind of the shame and the guilt, like that's an unfortunate cycle that needs to be, you know, worked through for sure with a professional, definitely to get, I mean, you need to get nutrition, micronutrients in your diet. You're not going to get those from peppermint patties, unfortunately. <laughs> How many peppermint patties hit my RDA of vitamin C? There's got to be By the a way, number. can I just, I, I'm going to this up, but I have to tell you a funny story that when the fat-free diet was like all the rage in the nineties, <laughs> when Kelly was coming of age, and we would all buy these giant tubs of red vines at Costco fat because free. they were fat free. And so you're like, yes, I can eat like a million red vines because they're fat free. So, but Kelly and his friend Shane couldn't read the nutrition label and they thought there was 10 grams of protein. We were in college. They there was 10 grams of protein per No, 10. no, no. Well, like every gr- like red vine we thought had, one. A, had, had a gram. gram. Protein. And so if we're driving across the country from Colorado to like Tennessee to race, we'd be like, piece of cake. I just had 10 grams of protein. Oh my God. And then we realized it was like 10 red 10 vines. 10 red vines for one gram of protein. And I was like, I, I think I have the beatus. I think I feel sick. Oh gosh. Like, yeah. I'm still not eating my protein macros. Anyway, We've come it's a long complicated. way. Okay. So Kyla, you have a lot of different things going on in Nutritional Revolution in addition to one-on-one coaching, but- Tell us a little bit about that and where can people find you? You actually have your own podcast. And And you teach on the socials every day. You're dancing point a lot. I see it. Yeah. (laughs) I need to record some new ones of those. Yeah. So at Nutritional Revolution on our website, we have um, like... Nutritionalrevolution.com? Yes. Yeah. And we have pre-recorded um, like webinar content for talking about low energy availability. We have some webinar content on that. We have loads of different um, meal plans and recipe books for people looking, whether it's for pre and post fueling, like homemade, like real food ideas. Um, if they're looking for more preppable 
things to get the nutrition on track on the weekends and stay prepared during the week. We have options for that as well. And then of course we have our one-on-one services and, and then also doing a little contract work on the side for a hydration company to help bring out a new fueling product that you might see at the bike club one day. So we'll see. (laughs) And what about the socials? Where can people find you there? Oh, yes. At Nutritional Revolution on Instagram. I don't have a Twitter. And I think that we have a Facebook. What's the name of your podcast? Nutritional Revolution. Yeah. We like to interview um, researchers and athletes and talk about how they fuel and then researchers on different, whether it's hydration and cooling techniques, things like that. I'm fascinated by. So I just think it's so fun. It's true. And I just want everyone to know out there, if you're using Kyla as a performance guide, she has been testing extensively on the, our local community bike club. And she knows everything she knows because she works with elite athletes every Saturday (laughs) in front of our house. And I just want to say you're welcome for all that information. We're so elite, Kyla. You're welcome. You're welcome. (laughs) You guys are, you guys are the real pros. Kyla, thank you so much for chatting with us today. No problem. Thank you guys so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Ready State. Until next time, cheers, everyone. You got it!